millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome to Peter Hart's Military History with myself and the lovely Gary Bain. Hi, Gary, how's it going? I'm all right, Peter, how are you? I'm very, 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 very well because I finished writing a sodding book yesterday. I'm not saying which one it is because I'll be trying to persuade him it's fantastic. I'm going to buy it in a few months' time. But yeah, so I'm in a good mood and all ready for this episode. And I feel it's it's nice because there's not that much death and killing in this one. So it's it's just a nice change. What are we doing, Gary? Tell them, tell the good people of uh, the world. Well, it's the uh, the next exciting instalments of the South Knox Fizzles. And this one's entitled Sicily and Home, 1943. Hurrah, the war's over. It's the war of 1939 to 43. Yeah. It's all over. Hooray. Now this bleeding war is over. You said you wouldn't oh. sing again. Yeah, I did say that, didn't I? The band have asked me not to sing as well. They say it's ruining It's not only the, the, the band. Yeah. <laughs> now, so where are we? Let's see. Now, so they, they fought their way through North Africa. And it, well, just for those who haven't caught up with any of the South Dots, they're all available, all for nothing, on our podcast. And uh, the last ones were the, 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 the fighting their way through, the, through North Africa. Uh, and then they were having a little rest by the seaside. Uh, and then it becomes that they become aware that planning has started for the invasion of Sicily. And <laughs> what could go wrong there, Gary? What could go wrong? And uh, it's basically the first step if you're going to invade uh, Italy from North Africa. You've really got to go through Sicily. Um, uh, who's in charge? Well, an American, General Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight in D. Supreme. Eisenhower. I'm just demonstrating my depth of knowledge for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. I didn't know his middle name was D. Yeah. Is that D-E-E? It is, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> And uh, he's in, so he's Supreme Commander, and Montgomery's Eighth Army, they're, they're, they're responsible for, uh, for the landings in southeast Italy. They're t- going to take the key airfields and the port of Syracuse, while the American US Seventh Army, they're going to land in the central Sicilian south coast, and then they'll move inland to get more airfields and the port of Pacino. And we've done all this, haven't we, Gary? You won't remember, because it was several months ago, but we did the invasion of you remember, Tell me about it. Well, I remember calling it Al Pacino, for <laughs> starters. Um, <laughs> I can see it. It's good that you took the main lessons from it. I did. That's the only thing I remember about that podcast. So they're resting at a place called Chiriba. And remember, the South Otsazars are now 107 Battery, 7th Medium Regiment, Royal Artillery, which are a regular. Uh, so although the South Otsazars are territorials, they're now in a regular... Well, in fact, they, they've ceased to exist, haven't they, following Knightsbridge? Yeah, br- 
briefly, yeah. So this is a, a reconstituted. Uh, now they they move to a transit camp at Seuss, and they they're preparing once again for war. Though yeah, they they take away all the excess vehicles and equipment because, like any good good unit, as they pass through anywhere, they, they steal <laughs> every movable vehicle. If it's not nailed down, yes. Every tent, every piece of equipment. They were particularly, by the way, after extra, extra cooking equipment and uh, and water water bowsers. Uh, they were great at that. Anyway, they, you can't get them when you're on a landing. You can't get extra things. So, anyway, they they board the landing ship tanks LSTs in Sioux Docks on the 25th of July, uh, 25th of June. I would imagine. <laughs> Sorry, so they don't, they don't land until uh, you're good with dates, of, aren't you? Oh yeah, we've uh, yeah yeah. I'm going, dates are my thing. They call me Datey Pete, uh, and no one really knew where they were going. And there's lots of speculation because it was a secret they were going to Sicily. And eventually, they, they, they sort of asked the captain of the LST. And do you know what, Gary? Do you know what? Do you know what? He knew. Uh, and the, they find out from the LST, and he says, "You're going to Malta." So what were they doing at Malta then? They they were ensuring that every man could swim for one thing, yeah. which I suppose well, that's is quite <laughs> useful. <laughs> Well, I'm doing swimming gestures even now because, you know, uh, partly for my physical exercise to keep myself in superb trim. And the other to demonstrate I'm aware of what you're saying. Uh, the other thing they have to do is waterproof all the vehicles uh, with a sort of bosticky stuff, which they slap all round it and they put a pipe up from the exhaust, all that sort of thing. And presumably loading and unloading the landing craft because that's all part of it, isn't it? Well, they practice it because it, it's all got to go without a hitch. And they're doing all this uh, and then... Uh, the invasion begins 10th of July 1943. Uh, a series of successful landings, and they're not in the, the 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 main thing. They're delayed by a gale. So I want you to picture a lot of vomiting south not Cesar's now. Can you picture that, Gary? I can, Peter. I'm looking at you. <laughs> Thank you. And they land unopposed on the Pacino Beach, which is right at the south east end. We'll put a map uh, up. Yeah, on the 12th of July. Now, uh, the first person we're going to have comment on this is Second Lieutenant Bob Fawlty. Now, he's, we've been following him all the way through, haven't we? He'd been a sergeant. Well, he'd been a, a, a gunner, then a sergeant, and now he's a Second Lieutenant. So he's going downhill in many ways. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, what, what, what's, what's Bob got to say? I've never seen so many ships. As far as the eye could see in both directions, it was just solid shipping and a great deal of aircraft activity, mostly ours. We landed right on the southern tip of the island at Cape Pacino. As a landing, it was a doddle, as the LST brought us right into the rocky shore, and we hardly got the tyres of the vehicles wet. We were quickly whistled off the beach and up these narrow roads into a hide at Notto, not very far inland. There, we de-waterproofed the vehicles, having not needed it at all. There's nothing like uh, waterproofing a vehicle and then unwaterproofing it for the British Army to go, what the bloody hell? Anyway, they do it. Now, um, while they're doing all this, the men wander off a bit. And there's a great quote I'm going to read from Sergeant David Tickle. Fantastic name. He's in B Troop 107 Battery. And he says this. There happened to be a village quite close to the assembly area. Lo and behold, in village, they found some of these big casks of wine. <laughs> they came back loaded with various items of dress, which were not actually military. They used to be stripped to the waist, and you could see these old gunners, silk scarf over the shoulder, fancy hat on, umbrellas up. I'm not sure that's, well, that's a euphemism or not, Gary. <laughs> 
What do you think? I, I don't, I'm just marvelling at your accent now. I'm just trying to work out where David Tickle was from. Nottingham. <laughs> okay. Anyway, he, um, they move off from the beach and Dave Tickle, right from the start, he thinks something's changed. They've been in, when they got to Sicily, they've been in the Western Desert and they and this is something that happens to all units as, as they go through the war. They start, the war gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It stops being a battery, it starts being an agra, army group, royal artillery, all this sort of thing's going on. And their part seems somehow diminished as a, as a battery. This is what uh, Dave Tickle says. Uh, we started to lose the uh, family spirit side of the 8th Army in North Africa. We've got a number of divisions that have been brought into Sicily that hadn't been in North Africa. And, of course, you'd, you'd got the advent of to, to Americans. You felt that things were changing. Whereas in North Africa, we felt that we were in the middle of what were happening and played an important part. We were known to all the divisions in North Africa. We knew them, and they bloody knew us. Now it started widening out. You, you lose a sense of belonging, like... I, you know, I, 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 it's like he was in the room. It, well, it was like he was in the field next door to the room. <laughs> now, so what's happening is Patton, he go, he's going to thrust up to northwest Sicily. This is General Montgomery, Patton, yeah? General Patton, we don't like him. Uh, sorry about that, I just don't like him. Uh, while Montgomery, who I also don't like battered his way up the east coast heading to uh, 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 so so he's going to batter his way up the east coast heading towards Catania now now by now the Italians had had enough uh, and on 24th of July Mussolini is deposed and arrested and there's a provisional government under Marshal Pietro Badoglia and he begins secret negotiations to get an armistice with the Allies uh, but as the Italian troops begin to evacuate, the Germans are ordered to fight on, and fight on they did. Uh, it's Dave Tickle again. I was going to say, was that Marshal Badoglio? I'm not sure you got that accent right. No, D- Dave Tickle, that was. Uh, so the 7th r- r- Medium Royal Artillery, are they tasked to support the 1st Canadian Division for the whole of the campaign? And they are very keen to get the 5.5-inch, you remember these massive 5.5-inch yeah. guns, as close to the front as possible. They want close support, especially when they're, they're running into the, uh, the the Herman Goring Panzer Division, who in this case are the baddies. Now, here's a quote from... Second... I think they're probably the baddies in every case, Herman Goring. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think we're Thinking about that. it. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, so tell me, tell me uh, what, what does, uh, what does uh, Second Lieutenant Bob Falls think of the nature of the fighting? Our OP parties would be up almost along with the leading tanks. And as soon as they bumped anything, we had targets come down and we dropped into action uh, wherever we could. It was often very, very difficult to find a field to deploy in for four very large guns. If you think of these mountain roads and the rough country on either side. On one particular field, somewhere before Leonforte, because it was a large field by Sicilian standards, there were 16 medium guns and three regiments of 25-pounders and a Bofors troop. We fired like mad from that field. I've never heard such a din with all this stuff going off together. Now, that's, it's, you can imagine what a target that is, but luckily the Germans didn't have as much artillery. And, and what, what's the really... What, 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 why can they do that? They just couldn't do that if the Luftwaffe was there, could they? And that, that that's important. We had we had air air control. That's why we'd taken the airfields out. That's what they're going for. 
Now, uh, the next story is a rather more personal story. It's of Albert Swinton. He's always been a favourite of ours. He's, he's been right the way through. He's a big, boxing, tough guy. Um, but a nice man. He was a very nice man when I met him. And he was, by this time, a gun sergeant. And he'd gone out for a recce to, to get a new position, new gun position. And when he came back, there were two new members in his, uh, in his gun detachment. Uh, what he didn't know, and this was quite common at the time, because the Sathod Sazars were being filled up from everywhere, was they'd just come out of a military prison. Now, that's what, that's what he didn't know. What they didn't know was that he was a, a very accomplished boxer. And you're going to tell the tale of, uh, of what's happening. And you're going to use your Nottingham accent. So I'm looking forward to this enormously. Sergeant Albert Swinton. Now, when I got back, these two odd buds were sat in my gun pit, who I didn't know. I must say here that I looked anything but a gun sergeant. All I'd got on was a pair of shorts, a pair of socks and a pair of boots. And I was covered in black dust. I said to these two chaps, Right, who are you? I got a mouthful of abuse asking, What the FML had I to do with me? After a few words, I told them in no uncertain words that I was the gun sergeant and that I'd have a bit of respect from them. And if that's the way they wanted it, then stand to attention when I talk to you. A thing that I'd never done before. But their attitude wanted it. We had quite an argument and they decided they were better than me. They'd been turfed out in the military jails in the UK, and a gang of them brought over to the combatant units and split out amongst them. For some reason, we had two in our troop, and I got both. We did not see eye to eye, so we finished up with me having to tell them who was boss and giving them a bit of a tossing. We had a fight, and I came off best. One at a time, we had a gentleman's agreement that we would sort it out between us man to man. I'll give them their due, it was a fair old tussle, but I was still sergeant at the end of it. I knocked a bit of sense into them. Great stuff. Fantastic accent. You are a true, true professional actor. Later on, they got on quite well. The one turned out a really good gunner, and the other one was <laughs> made cook in the officer's mess, where I'm sure there was no special sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, he used to give Albert Swinton an extra tray of food. <laughs> so, mm. <laughs> anyway, so uh, as they move north in Sicily, the landscape gets worse and well, worse and worse, nicer and nicer in one way. Lots and lots of really steep hills, dramatic ravines, narrow winding roads. And you could see the roads going up. The villages are often perched right on the bloody top. Uh, of uh, of these hilltops and ridges. Uh, a very crowded countryside. And this is uh, Lieutenant David Elliot. David Elliot was six foot six to six foot eight. He was a giant of a man. And he said this. There, there was, he, he's from Surrey. <laughs> there, there, were, there were fruit crops, olive groves, vineyards, vineyards, very, very few fields of grass, very difficult to get into action quickly. And on the road, you felt very vulnerable to being attacked from the air. You were nervous to tail moving up. The problem was the gates and the stone walls were too narrow to get through. It's all hills and mountains, and no way can you tell which road is going to which mountain. On top of these hills were the villages. That's my idea of what Surrey people stand like. Now, uh, the fighting could be intense, uh, and, and the, 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 it sort of squalled up. One minute there'd be nothing happening, and then something is just all hell let loose. And this is, uh, you're going to tell a story told by Bob Falls, 
Here we go. Go on, Bob. Second Lieutenant Bob Forbes. They sent me out at first light to link up with the Canadian battalion, who were on top of the hill and attacking down a forward slope. I went up with a truck, a driver, OPAC and a signaller. That's an observation post, yep. chap, yeah. Uh, we liaised with the Canadians, then went to make an OP, which overlooked this forward slope. On the front corner of the rock was a Canadian OP, which was busy shelling some targets. Their 25-pounders were in a wood to our right rear. We started to record some targets and did a couple of shoots, and then the Germans opened up on this OP with Nebelwerfers. It gave us a fright as they dropped very well on target first time, and worse than that, we had been concealed in dry grass, and it set the grass on fire. It burnt the whole of the top of the hill off, and we had to bail out. The Nebelwerfer moved his range further back and he put them all around where our track was parked at the back of the hill and it knocked out a Canadian Bren gun carrier and set it on fire. Signaller Moore was the first on the scene to get the crew out, fishing them out from this blazing Bren gun carrier. The whole place was a shambles. The Nebelwerfers hit this 25-pounder troop squarely and turned some guns completely upside down. The attack failed and the whole situation quietened down. And this is, you see, even though they're outnumbered, they've got lesser equipment, they've got no air support, they're still bloody dangerous to Germans at times. Great hard-fighting troops. But there's, there's a big difference. What is the biggest difference between fighting in the desert and fighting in Sicily, would you say, Gary? Ice cream. The Cornetto supply. The you Cornetto have a, supply. You well, have a supply of Neapolitan <laughs> ice cream, particularly. Well, oh, it's yes. going to be civilians. <laughs> it's going to be civilians. Yeah. I should imagine in the desert you very rarely see any civilians, but you're now fighting in towns and villages. And and sometimes if you're firing 5.5-inch shells at long range, you're going to hit them. And this is another quote from Bob Falls. By now we were shooting at occupied towns and villages, which was pretty diabolical as far as we were concerned. We'd been used to four years of fighting with almost no civilians at all, but the odd Bedouin. Now we were coming to villages which hadn't been evacuated, probably couldn't have been evacuated. Many were situated on the top of a hill from medieval times, so the roads themselves ran through the valley and over the top of the hill through the village. The only way to get through the mountain was to go through the town, and of course every town was made a strong point by the Germans and Italians, so in turn they all got bombed and shelled by ourselves. Now, one one thing that a lot of them mentioned, Elliot mentions it, David Elliot we just had, but uh, was the 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 town at the small town of Regalbuta, and I've been there and I've seen it, um, and it it was it was absolutely hammered by air raids and also by the South Nazis who shelled it to bits. Now, Bombardier Ken Giles, he'd been almost a conscientious objector, but just changed his mind and joined up, and he was uh, he was one of the ones who did the maths uh, 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 back at, at the thing. And he, 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 he said this. This is one of my most disturbing memories. The enemy had been occupying this village, perched on a kind of pinnacle. We had to fire in such a way that our fall of shot covered the German infantry at the back of the village. Then we advanced towards the village. By this time, our troops had captured it. There was a first aid post in the village. We could see our troops being brought back on stretchers, all of them in gory, bloody messes. The thing that really sticks in my mind to this very day, and I find quite disturbing emotionally, we passed a row of shattered hovels. They'd obviously been on fire because they were still smoking. 
Now, whether it was our shells that had fallen on them, I'd worked out the programme for that shoot, or whether it was enemy shells coming from the other side, I didn't know. There were women leaning over the bodies of their babies and children. They seemed to have no clothes on, blackened skulls with all the flesh burnt off them, just skulls. And the women weeping over them looked badly burned as well. The sight was absolutely demoralising. As we passed through this place, there was not a single sound from any person in our entire convoy. Whenever we had a successful shoot, I couldn't help thinking, there go some mother's son, some girl's sweetheart, some wife's husband, that I may have been instrumental in killing or maiming for life. Those thoughts invariably passed through my mind. They never stayed there. I like to think, well, it might have me. It might have been me in reverse. I hate war. I always have. Um, and that's uh, that's that's quite a different quote. Uh, to, it's something to think about. He, I mean, it's not a terrible campaign for the South Knots, but they still saw some terrible things. In effect, the, ca- the campaign fizzles out because the 5th Agra Army Group Royal Artillery that they're part of was split up. Uh, it had been split up for the campaign. And then it's concentrated at Riposto, some 25 miles north of Catania. And, and they stay there while the rest of the Allies press forward. Uh, and uh, in the end, the Germans escape. They escape across the Messina Straits uh, and, uh, and the, the, the Sicilian campaign's over. Uh, Patton's troops get to Messina first because they're having a childish race with Montgomery and that's on August the 17th. Uh, and the city is, is empty. Uh, they've, they've done it all in uh, just over a month. Uh, Fifth Agra then moves forward to Messina, uh, which is the big port opposite Italy, ready to take part in a support bombardment across the Straits for the landings on the Italian mainland. And the, the South Arts, as us, they take up a, pos- a position along the coastal war road, Pistunina, Pistunina. Uh, it's a little tiny village. And at 3.45 on the 3rd of September 1943, they begin, they begin a long-range counter-battery fire uh, bombardment uh, across the Straits to support the landing of 13th Corps under Dempsey, General Miles Dempsey. Uh, that's in the Calabria area. Now, the bombardment was a success, but there is a comical side. Not if you're receiving the shells on Calabria, I'm sure, but there's a comical side for Sergeant Albert Swinton, who, again, you'll be reading, in, I'm sure, in your, uh, in your Nottingham accent. We dug in at the back of these rural houses alongside the street. On our left front was the village church. Every time we fired more slates come off the roof, we just blasted all the roof off. These houses really took a pounding. As for the church, every time we fired on a certain angle, the church bell rang. We were only 200 to 300 feet away. When everything quietened down, the builders and their mates amongst us went and put these houses back into shape. That's nice of the lads, because there are a lot of ex-builders, and ex-people who'd worked on uh, uh, buildings as uh, sites amongst the South Hudson's house. So they went and sorted it out. They didn't get a single round back from the Germans. This is an, almost unopposed. And 13th Corps move in, inland and, and, and it's soon all, they're out of the range of the 5.5 inch guns. Uh, but that's the end of the South Nuts Italian campaign. Uh, they didn't know that though. Uh, 8th of September they heard Italy had unconditionally surrendered. Uh, and then, and then, what happened next is a second landing uh, by the, by the American Fifth Army at Salerno, up on the west coast, just up on the left hand side of the the Italian coast. Left hand side, 
sorry, the west and uh, west hand side. West hand side. You mean on the west coast? Yeah, I do. I do. Thank you. Which is on the left hand um, side. Oh yeah, it's on the left hand side. Let's settle on that. Um, that the satellites are not involved, uh, and their future's being decided. So they have this nice little holiday, about two months at Pistionina, uh, and they, they start to enjoy life again. The funny side starts to come out. And and I like Ted Holmes. He was from Chesterfield. Uh, and this, I, I, I want to hear the discernment between a Chesterfield accent and a Nottingham accent. I want that clearly here, though. Because uh, he was a sanitary couple. If you remember, he'd been badly wounded at Knightsbridge. He wasn't able to, to, to carry on uh, the main duties, but he, he could still do so, some things. He, sanitary corporals are useful. Uh, he also showed great vision inciting his latrines. Tell us what he said, Ted Holmes. Gunner Ted Holmes. I made myself famous for building a loo with a view. I dug a hole for a loo, got the thunderbox on, no canvas screen round it, you just sat there, and it overlooked the Straits of Messina. You could see right up the tour of Italy. That's terrible. Could you discern the difference? No. They both sounded like Yorkshiremen <laughs> with some sort of speech. <laughs> no. Actually, I think my uh, my accent was no better. Should we abandon accents? Yeah, I think we might better. Right. Well, this is uh, that now that there is another funny story. If you well, I don't know whether people will find it funny, but in those days, you remember they used to all wear brill cream, yeah. and they couldn't get any brill cream. So, what does Albert Swinton use? He uses something else. Tell us the story, Sergeant Albert Swinton. There was always a shortage of buffer oil the oil used in the recuperator system of the gun, which is an air and oil pneumatic system. Buffer oil consisted of glycerine and vegetable oil. It wasn't any old rubbish, it was good stuff. Captain Ivor Birkin was always shouting for buffer oil. He could never get enough of it. This went on all the time. One day the colonel came round to do an inspection and he obviously knew me because he turned to me and said, how do you keep your hair so immaculate, sergeant? I said, well, buffer oil, sir. It was the one and only time I remember Ivor Birkin being embarrassed. He was always screaming for buffer oil, and there was me wasting it on my hair. Just a little smear on your hands, just enough to keep your hair down, like you did the old brill cream. Do you think I should use buffer oil on my hair? What hair? <laughs> That's the spirit. Now... Meanwhile, uh, during this sort of two months, Ken Giles, is, he's a real intellectual, and he composes and performs a pianoforte piece for Beetroot. And I've heard it, and he actually builds in a sort of... It's, uh, let me read his thing. He explains what he did. A bon, uh, bombardier Ken Giles, I, call, I called it Island Rhapsody because I planned it to reflect the four guns of Beetroot, and it also reflected in my mind the beauty of Sicily. The basic theme goes in beats of four, so each beat there represented one of the four guns. Then I developed the theme and tried to make it as romantic-sounding as possible, but also with an element of underlying tragedy. There are certain keys in my mind that, are all, that have always been associated with death, so I introduced them and a vague slide Sorry, a slight vague passage of what we now nowadays call atonality. That's a bit like our singing, Gary. <laughs> Since each hand is playing in a different key, so there's a vague sense of not being connected. I call it the churchyard effect. 
This Island Rhapsody proved to be very popular, mainly because it was a personal thing. I did it for B True. Now, so they were there, they were enjoying themselves, they went to, they visited Messina, the, uh, the, sorry, they visited Pacino, Pacino, Al Pacino, yeah, that's it, Al Pacino, that's the only way I can remember. <laughs> so they visited that, they went to, they, they had a lovely time. Then, come October 43, they have a big parade, and all the regiments of 5th Agra are gathered in a parade. And this is uh, Troop Sergeant Harold Harper. You remember him? Troop Sergeant Major? Uh, and he says this. We were summoned into the square at Messina and addressed by General Montgomery. We were all on parade in the correct military fashion and he just drove into the middle and then beckoned everyone round. He told us we were going home. Hey! He was coming with us because he might be needing us in the invasion of Europe. Whereupon all the men gave a loud boo. Boo! It was all good humoured stuff. I bet it was. <laughs> um, you're going home. Hooray! You're going to join in the invasion of Europe. You bastard. <laughs> anyway, the planning all begins, uh, and 107 guns, battery guns, all the equipment's handed in. <laughs> That's a lot of work. Again, they've got, by this time, they've stolen off the loose vehicles in Sicily from the, their uh, various accounts. Um, and then 8th of November, 107 Regiment, the rest of five Agra, they all embark aboard troop ships, uh, and they're, they're, they're off. They, they, they firstly they go to Algiers, that's in North Africa, uh, and where they they just embark there, and then things start to go really wrong for the regiment. Uh, now they thought they wouldn't be there long. They thought they'd just be staying overnight in a transit camp. They're getting on another shippy thing, but they stay. The fall of Fifth Agra stays there for three weeks. Now what could go wrong in a camp? What 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 do you expect to have in a camp, Gary? Well. I should imagine all fully uh, uh, equipped, all amenities, uh, good housing, plenty of water and food. Uh, it, it must have been very well prepared. Yes. Well, actually, they didn't have huts. They had a few tents, not enough. In fact, nowhere near enough. Eventually, they get a few tents. And then guess what happens then? I don't know. The water supply fails. <laughs> <laughs> and then... It starts to pour down. Oh, that's good. At least it gets some water. <laughs> uh, I don't know. And somehow the army manages to make things even worse because uh, and this is uh, Gunner Reg Cutter, B Troop 107 Battery. Now, he, Gary, and I forgot to prepare you for this. I think we've got to have this accent. He's a Geordie. Out and out, Geordie. Now, you've always prided yourself on your Geordie accent, so let's hear it. We ain't there was a bit of a rumpus on. We no sooner got into this camp and he started to come up with regimental discipline. They wanted us same as in peacetime, polishing buttons, brasses, and I think after all the fighting, I think the men thought it was a little bit stiff, a little bit hard. We didn't mind discipline. It got the backup of some of the 7th Medium Regiment men. They'd been abroad from 1932. They'd been in India six and a half years of buggers. The men started to moan and groan. <laughs> then, at last, so that not only do they bloody well, you know, they're in shit conditions, but they've got, they're, they're getting full-on army discipline re-established, and the lads don't like it. Now, on the 3rd of December, 
the lorries arrive three weeks later to take them back to Algiers in a new troop ship. And this is Lieutenant Ian Sinclair. Uh, he's A Troop 107. He had a slightly Mancunian accent uh, when I interviewed him. Yeah, when I interviewed him, he sounded as if he'd come from London. Uh, we were told we weren't going to go on the boat until four o'clock in the afternoon. What are we going to do with these blokes who know they're going home and are going to be let free in Algiers? Oh, my God. Which they've been desperate to get to. We gave them their orders that they mustn't, they mustn't drink. Anybody who got drunk would be clapped in irons. We piled all the kit bags and the rifles and told the men that they had to be back at a certain time, ready to march down to the ship. And then they were on their own. What do you think happened, Gary? Well, I should, imagine, happen? I should imagine they obeyed his order to the letter. What would happen if me and you were allowed to go to, we get to Algiers? We'd get absolutely pissed. <laughs> would the word hammered come into use? Yeah. So what happens? Go on, take up the story again. He goes on to say, Eventually, we did round all my lot up and got them on parade, but there was barely a man that hadn't got drunk. I hadn't, because I damn know in this lot. I had to say to them, Right, there will be no drink on board. Everybody who's got it, put it in the gutter. Not a move. I knew I'd got a mutiny on my hands. Oh, dear, oh, dear. What are we going to do now? I decided to take the ball by the horns. Right, if you don't put them down, I'm going to come and get them myself. And I'm going to start with you. He was a great, big, tall scouser. Scouser McKay was his name. Still not a move. So I said, right, I'm coming to get it. I went and took this thing off him. Smashed it in the gutter. I said... Now then, do I have to take them all, or are we going to get rid of them? There was still not a move. So I went to the next bloke and took his. Suddenly, they all broke ranks. Christ, what's happening? But they broke ranks to get rid of their drinks. They broke their own bottles in the gutter. Nobody was going to have it if they didn't. I love that. He got. I think he was lucky to get away with that, don't you? So do I. Uh, I should have mentioned at the start, his troop had got most of the troublemakers that bit sent so uh oh dear oh dear oh dear, oh dear. um so now now they're going to go home aren't they so they board the troop ship franconia Ooh, lovely uh this they've been how long have they been abroad gary let's work it out because you're better at maths than me uh um, uh, married two three times two uh four years blimey so uh so what does ian sinclair say about 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 getting back home We'd been away for so long, gone away as lads and come back as men. Very different sort of people. We'd lived a very strange life, knowing nothing about civilian life in England during the war. So we didn't really know what to expect. What's it going to be like? We were a little bit at a loss as to how we might be going to adjust. I think it'll be anxious. Yeah, I can understand, because it, it, it is boys to men, isn't it, for, for, for a lot of these South Nazis, lad. Now, the Franconia docks at uh, Liverpool. There's a great story in some of the accounts that when they first got there, they all rushed because these wrens were walking down, <laughs> down the pier head, and they all rushed to one side of the boat, and the boat apparently tipped. I think that may be apocryphal. Have you seen the size of the Franconia? Uh, but nevertheless, uh, they get off. Uh, it was uneventful. They, they get there, uh, and... Uh, that there's really stringent security precautions, presumably, to, I suppose, to, to, 
because it's a big thing, Fifth Agra, uh, Army Group Royal Artillery. Um, I suppose they didn't want them to know that they might be being added to the order of battle for any invasion of uh, Europe. Uh, they had to take off their unit insignia and they were ordered not to speak to any Liverpudlians. Have you ever tried not speaking to a Liverpudlian, Gary? Well, I've tried understanding one or two and I failed miserably. Well, I love them all. They're all lovely. Um, so this is uh, Battery Quartermaster Sergeant Dave Tickle uh, and he said this. No daft accent. I think we've had enough accent. We didn't know what to expect. We were looking round, expecting to see half Liverpool shattered, buildings wrecked. It didn't strike us that way. Everybody came over to the port. So it's like, oh, this is that story. And I see where I... Yeah, you know that story? Yeah, I, I know where you got it from. <laughs> I, I know where I got it from there. <laughs> Everybody came over to the port side and the whole boat tilted. We hadn't seen a wren or an ATS last for the whole of the trip. To see these wrens walking about on the quayside, it was eye-popping. Aye. People were whistling and shouting. I can't whistle. Gary, whistle. Very good. And shouted, hey, 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 I thought you said you weren't going to do any stupid accents. Or was that you, as Mike Yarwood used me. to say? Mike Yarwood used to say that to me a lot. Uh, special troop trains then whisked them off to Felixstowe. Uh, and there they, uh, they, they were sorted into billets. And it's just fleeting because within 48 hours, every man in the South Hudson's was sent home on a month's leave. Now, can you imagine how they felt about that? How would you feel if you'd been... Well, when you'd been serving in Germany, after all, how did you feel about getting home? <laughs> you dreamed about it, you'd fantasised about it, and now you're actually going to get home, aren't you? Yeah, I used to fantasise about going home. <laughs> anyway, uh, Red Cutter, he goes back to East Bolden on Tyneside. Now, I want that Tyneside accent again. And he got quite a reception. But there's one thing he couldn't quite swallow, wasn't there? Tell us what it was, Gary Reg. Ganyam. Above the door was welcome home. There was a crowd round you. You feel embarrassed. When I eventually did get in the house, my mother was over the moon to see us, crying. I remember her first words. Thank God you're home safe, son. You'll never guess what I've kept for you over a number of years. I said, what's that? She says, a tin of corned beef. For people at home, it was a luxury. I says, oh, my God, don't mention that stuff. She thought she'd been doing good keeping it to one side for us all that time. I said, you eat that. We've had enough of that stuff up the desert. <laughs> this is a, a common story. Again, I'm not sure about the, the whether it's apocryphal or not. But it's a great story anyway. Um, now, Ken Giles, he's an older man. And uh, when he got back, he had a wife and son. And it was his son. Sorry, I'm not sorry. <laughs> yeah, when he got back, he found he had a wife and son. He didn't have them when who, he went away. Who the hell are you? <laughs> who are you? And what are you doing in my bedroom? Anyway, uh, it, it was a tremendous meeting. For, but can you imagine? Because yeah, if you're, say, six or seven and you meet your dad, what it must be like when he's been away for three or four years. Anyway, because uh, Ken, Ken had gone out later than some of them. And this is uh, this is uh, Bombardier Ken Giles. He said, we went on leave. I, I'd previously telephoned my wife to say that I'd be home sometime the following day. Following day. Always a good idea to warn the wife after a long absence. <laughs> we were living in Stockwell at that time. When I got home, I knocked on the door and my son opened it. He'd be six or seven years old. He was obviously expecting me. I could still see his face. He blushed absolutely crimson. And he wouldn't say a word. He was clearly very embarrassed. Now, when you come... 
this is not the same, but when you come home after a while, your dog punishes you, doesn't he? Tell us about what Fred does <laughs> Fred if you go away to Gallipoli. He just growls yeah. at you. He comes he for a stroke. To... He comes for a stroke and you think, oh, he's PC, and then he just looks at you and goes, oh, don't go away again. But funnily enough, my wife does the same thing. <laughs> yes, I hope she never hears this. Um, so... But I, I think that I remember when he told me he was quite upset at that point because it, it was quite emotional for him, uh, and and that poor boy deprived. Of, I mean, that's one of the things we always forget: children deprived of their parents for year after year after year, and their formative years. I mean, your parents formed you, didn't they? I'm still in my formative years. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I hope I'm having a good influence on you. Oh, absolutely. Right. After they leave, they go back to Felix Dome. They're preparing. Once again for war, and there must have been a bit of a feeling of deja vu, mustn't there? Because it's all going around again. Well, you know, um, they're going to go straight back in the firing line, and this is uh, going to Reg McNish. He's one of seven batteries. They're all one of seven batteries. And he said this, and I think this is a very soldier-like thing, isn't it? You'd rather not have, 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 have got to do any more soldiering. You've done your fair share, all right, because we were some of the first in action, and we've been right through. There were people, lots and lots of people, who'd done nothing at all, who'd been stationed in England all the time for four years. No doubt they'd done training, but they'd not seen any action. There was a bit of feeling that it was time somebody else had a go. And I know a 50th div, this is the people who most thought this, the uh, the Time T's division, they really thought that, because uh, they, they were dragged back and sent off to D-Day as well. So now they were going to take part in the second front. Uh, D-Day, they didn't know it was D-Day then. They were experienced men. They could harness the mass power of the guns that were going to be needed in Normandy, because now the guns are really important. Indeed, a couple of batteries is neither here nor there in some ways because this is a mighty agra. And this isn't one agra. There's lots of agras, lots of mass medium, lots of heavy guns, hundreds if not thousands of guns. Their firepower augmented by mass bombing and straffing. The war is becoming, well, I'd call it mechanistic. Do you know what I mean? Do you understand what I'm saying, Gary? It's, it's, it's not an individual matter now. It's not one battery. This is thousands of guns, mass firepower. It's a bit like the First World War, really. That's what they come into. Now, during their leave, the knobs, as I know you call officers, uh, 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 some of them are, have revitalised their, their campaign to have the South Knots Hussars reinstated as a full regiment. Now, who is this in particular? Well, it's, uh, it's Captain Ivor Birkin. Uh, we've, we've talked about Ivor Birkin before. A slightly strange character, one of the influential Birkin family, one of which had been killed, another one was a prisoner. And uh, this is Lieutenant Ian Sinclair. What does Ian say about what was happening? Reformation was the only thing we ever thought of, talking about it. Although we were seventh medium, we were always apart from seventh medium. Never the twain shall meet, unless it could be avoided. We were a cliquey lot, thought we were better than the best. Probably were. Now, it's interesting. You, you heard what he says. We're, it, they're always talking about it. It's what everybody wanted. Uh, 27th of February, they got a letter confirming that Birkin, Ivor Birkin, and the old guard of South Notzazar's officers, and men like Ian Sinclair, who'd been, uh, he'd been a, 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 a gunner and then a, 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 a NCO, 
Uh, now, 107 battery is going to be amalgamated with 126 battery. That was coming from 16th medium to form a new 107th medium consisting of 400 to 425 and 426 batteries. Back to the... Back to the yeah, back to what they were. Uh, so uh, that's what's going to happen. And they would now be in ninth agro. This is the point. These agros, these huge agros. Most of the officers, delighted. Um, but they had a meeting in the sergeant's mess. Now, I'd like you to compare and contrast, Gary, what I'm going to tell you from Troop Sergeant Major Harold Harper with what you've just told me uh, being Ian Sinclair, because it's different. This is what Harold Harper says. I was torn with my loyalties. Obviously, I knew a lot of work had been done to getting our regiment back again. But on the other hand, we'd made a lot of friends with members of the 7th Medium Regiment. It seemed a pity, really, to break that fighting unit up. In fact, quite a few resented the move for the simple reason that the Nottingham contingent had disappeared at Knightsbridge anyway. By the time we came to February 1944, I would doubt if there were more than 50 Nottingham people left. So that's quite interesting. It's an officer, and he's a good officer, Ian Sinclair, but he doesn't know what his men... He doesn't even know what his senior, a troop sergeant major, and therefore he's the... He's a conduit to what the lads are thinking, isn't he? Yeah. Um, it's interesting that. So 107 battery, they leave Felix Doe, and the new 107th medium regiment, the South Otsazars, gather for the first time at Brighton on the 19th of March. They've got a new colonel. Tell me about the colonel. Tell me a bit about the colonel, Gary. Well, he was a, a, a renowned gunner officer. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Marshal St John Oswald. And he, Normal working class lad then. Oh yeah, absolutely. He was from uh, Tacton, and he uh, he made a good impression immediately because the first thing he did on arriving was to request an issue of the Acorn Cap badge that meant so much to the uh, the South Knots Hussars. Ooh, now um, he's joined uh, Major James Martin. Uh, he's the one he'd been in charge of 107. He's appointed to command 425 Battery. And Major Charles Rickard, who was quite a character in the regiment, but doesn't come out as much in the story because he, we never interviewed him. Uh, he was going to command 426 Battery. The men were mixed and matched in various ways. I'm not going to describe that. You'll have to read my book, At Close Range. And then there's another bit that I can't remember. Was it an artillery regiment at war, 1939-1945? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, something like that, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and and the men are mix and match, and and things seem to go quite well. And this is Troop Sergeant Major Harold Harper again. He says, "We were seasoned soldiers, having seen a lot of enemy action. Whereas we were with a bunch of chaps who all they'd done was drill on the square. This is the chap coming from. This is one two six battery chaps who come from 16th Medium Regiment. They'd never been in action. A bit of rivalry went on, but I tried to make these people feel at home. They turned out to be a good bunch of lads." Their gun drill was very, very good. Probably better than ours. We'd let a lot of things go by the board in action. You learn certain things on the square. They're always at the back of your mind. But when you get in action, you do things a little better, a little bit better. Our standards rose again. We really had to show that we were, that we were a fire, fighting unit. Because in other words, it, the two things, there's a, there's a right way of doing it, and then there's a way of doing it that you do in action where you cut corners. And sometimes you have to go back to the right way to sort of all join together and then re, re move forward together. Um, now, uh, th this is uh, Lieutenant David Elliott, uh, B Troop 425 Battery, and he talks uh, about some of the problems they get. 
with uh, with peacetime things. And this is what he says. One of the first problems we had with all these new gunners was they'd been trained for the last few years into a system which made them very, very slow to get into action and get the first shot on the ground. We had difficulty in breaking the habits they had when they first went on to a gun position. The first thing they did was erect the camouflage nets which was about the last thing we would do. We were always in a hurry to get into action. So you see what I mean? It, it's sort of, there's this, there's, this, there's this clash between what you should do, what you're supposed to do according to the book, and what you did in reality. Um, there's also a chafing against the sort of restrictions you get on home service. Uh, there were rules that they had. Uh, there were procedures to be followed. And, and people like Ian Sinclair thought didn't think much of it. What does Ian Sinclair say about it, Gary? Personal smartness and bullshit. Smartening yourself up. Making sure your belt was properly blankoed and your putties properly done. The trousers beautifully creased. Walking smartly. Parades. That was not irksome. The irksome things were the things that we knew didn't matter. If it doesn't move, paint it. The way we were made to do silly little things that have got nothing to do with war. Polishing vehicles underneath the wing mudguards. When it came to doing manoeuvres, having to blacken your faces, which we hadn't had to blacken our faces for four years at the war. Learning how to do from the book. You'd learnt skills. You learn from the book to start with, but experience enables you to make innovations to do things more easily. Now, uh, 29th of so they, they gather at Brighton, and then 29th of April, the, the whole of 9th Agra goes to Yorkshire in the Geisley area. Now, that must have been terrible for them. Can, can you just imagine being sent to a primitive place with, with no facilities, surrounded by miserable bastards who won't speak to you? It must have been terrible. And uh, the one good thing is uh, that, that they get to train on Ilkley Moor. Bartat. And and so they're out there. They 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 back to training, uh, and 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 then suddenly they get orders to move south. Uh, at dawn on fourth of June, ninety four. Why? What, what could be happening? Why could they be having to move south? The convoy of a vehicle sets off on a long journey to Dudsbury Camp, six miles from Bournemouth. Now. So what's the situation? The 9th Agra, they're not going to be the first ashore, are they? They're not an invasion force, are they? They're, they're follow-up, aren't they? Uh, and that there's a period of... They're all expecting that they're going to have to go. But there's hold-ups in Normandy, aren't there? Because in the end, although D-Day is a success, the fighting afterwards, they don't move inland quickly, do they? The Germans put up a hell of a resistance. And so there's a period where tension mounts up. When's it going to be their turn to go? When, when are they going to go uh, to Normandy? Uh, they were supposed to originally uh, embark at Southampton Docks. Then on 9th of July, they're suddenly ordered to drive all the way to Tilbury Docks in East London. You live near Tilbury Docks in East London, don't you? Yes, so do you. Oh, yeah. Well, isn't here. <laughs> uh, Reg Cutter sums up the view of many of the men as they prepared once again to go to war. Uh, they might have moaned about the regiments... Uh, who'd not served they might have moaned about all those other people who'd not done anything and now well, why can't they fight first but in the end you know they're prepared to see it through and this for me is a fantastic quote that shows the true spirit of the british soldier moaning like mad but willing to carry it through you're going to read it are you and no no need for a daft accent lance bombardier rage cutter 
Montgomery wanted experienced men and he could rely on the men that had proved themselves up the desert. We were saying to ourselves, it's the same people doing the same job over and over again. What the hell are they doing in Blighty? But you couldn't expect those people in Blighty to do it because they'd never had any experience. Actually, to tell you the truth, I would have hated to be stationed in this country, a blighty waller, polish this, polish that, painting lumps of coal white and all that. I joined the army to fight, and that's what I did. We'd made a name for ourselves, and we were going to make sure we kept it up. That's the true voice of the British soldier, isn't it, Reg Cutter? He was a great old Geordie. I remember going down to interview him. And that's where we're going to leave him. Uh, the next episode will be, uh, well, next two episodes will be there fighting in, in France, uh, Belgium, Normandy and into Germany. Uh, and boy, do they do some more fighting. Uh, I hope I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It's it's a bit lighter than usual, yep. odd moment of tragedy. But it's all part of the story of the regiment, isn't it? And... Uh, off they go to war again. Uh, and how do you feel about them? Do you, do you, are you getting used to the new characters, Gary? Yeah, I can't wait for the next episode, to be honest. So uh, let's just get on and record it, Pete. Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it now, let's do it now. No. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, this is probably going out in January. We're recording this two days before Christmas. So um, a belated Christmas uh, felicitations to you. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you very much. Cheers, lads. Bye. And lasses. And lasses. Yeah, cheers, Pete. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?